Last week we looked at the first ten verses of Psalm 34. This psalm was written as David is on the run from King Saul. Uh, Saul has made it known that he wants to kill David. He's convinced Jonathan, his son, and he's convinced David that his life is in peril. And King Saul and his palace guards are in hot pursuit of David. David has behaved in an uncharacteristic way for David. Uh, he lied to the priest Ahimelech about his mission, why he was out there by himself and didn't have the king's company with him. Then he asked for a sword from the, uh, the priest, and he's given Goliath's sword. And then he goes before uh, the king of Gath of the Philistines, and he acts insane. This is perhaps the lowest point of human pride, if you can call it that, in David's life. And David, along with Jonathan, Saul's son, are best of friends. And they're closer, it says, than brothers. And it says Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. And they've parted ways now. And they will never see each other again. But they've made a covenant of peace between them. And Jonathan wants David, when he becomes king, to take care of his descendants. And David will do that. It's a covenant where... Uh, both men respect the covenant, and David lives up to his part of that covenant. But like I said, we studied verses 1, 2, 3, and 1, 2, 3, and 1 through 10. <laughs> and let's read again, though, uh, the first 10 verses of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around, all around, those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And we went over this last week. But that one verse in uh, uh, verse 8 is just a, a telling, telling verse. And it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. When we appear before the Lord and see him in his glory and in his fullness, this verse will have more meaning than we can imagine that we have tasted of the Lord and we have seen 
that he is good. It's amazing to me that God in all his glory and all his power and all his majesty would make such an offer to mankind. Taste of me and see if I'm not good. Give me an honest tryout. Our conclusion will be revealing. God says, you will see that I, the Lord, am good. What an offer. What an offer. Myself, along with many of you, have been Christians for probably many years. But the goodness of God is so refreshing. I never get accustomed to God's goodness. It is always so wonderful. It's very humbling to meditate upon the Lord and His goodness. I know I do, and I'm sure you do too. But let's continue with the psalm. We'll look at verses 11 through 22. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who deserves life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. What a section. Psalm 34 is one of my favorite psalms, by the way. David begins this section of this psalm with, Listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Verse 12 who is the person that desires life and wants good? Well, I think that's probably all of us. We need to look beyond our day-to-day -day activities. We can sometimes feel that we're in a rut, you know, or we're doing the same old, same old over and over again. But David wants us to look to God for goodness because he loves us. Let each day be a good experience before the Lord. Verses 13 and 14, they tells us, uh, David does, on how to fear the Lord and how to bring that fear forth. And he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile or deceit. Most of your translations will probably use deceit, but I like the word guile. Guile is more than deceit. Guile is using deception to obtain a goal 
for myself. Jesus only spoke of one of his disciples as being free of guile. Or really only of one person that I know of in the New Testament. And that was Nathaniel. So in John 1, 43 through 47, you may want to turn there. Jesus is out calling disciples to himself. And we'll pick it up in John 1, verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Guile will cause you to be constantly concerned about what's in it for me. And it's a me-first attitude. And Nathaniel is free of that. Many times, and way too often, we get concerned about the interactions of others and how they affect me. We get concerned about uh, different laws that are passed and how they affect myself. And we can't help but think sometimes, what do I benefit from these new laws or rules and regulations? But when we look carefully at the disciples, one of their constant arguments was who is the greatest. They argued about that quite often. Evidently, Nathaniel did not enter into these debates because Jesus said of him, there's no guile in him. Many people try to do acts of uh, humanitarian deeds for the benefit of being recognized. Warren Buffett, well-known philanthropist, has been quoted concerning his giving to good causes. And here's what he had to say. There are many ways to enter into heaven but giving to good causes or to the poor is the best way. Wow, what's wrong with that statement? Warren has selfish motives for his giving. He thinks he can earn heaven by his giving. David in Psalm 34, 13 declares, You want the abundant life? Depart from the me first or depart from guile and be careful how you talk and what you say. Do not be speaking in a guile way or what's in it for me. Don't even talk about it. Verse 14, and while we're on this journey of trying to please God with our lives, David gives us some 
some clues, some answers to how to do that. He says, depart from evil. There you go. That's simple enough. Do good. Seek peace. And go after peace and pursue it. We're to pursue peace. Now, if you're truly seeking peace, it requires you humble yourself. Often, you will have to surrender what we call some of my rights. We live in a world where almost everyone proclaims, I've got my rights. Or you don't respect me. One of the pro football players who refused to stand during last week's national anthem where Vice President Pence was attending, when Pence left the stadium after several players knelt during the national anthem, one of the football players said, oh, the VP is just trying to protest against football. What is he doing? What is he protesting against? He's protesting against the national anthem, the flag, And he found fault with Vice President Pence. When we surrender our rights to be heard, to voice our opinion when nobody really cares anyway, or demonstrate our grievances, when we give up that right, that can be looked upon as pursuing peace. Not everybody wants to hear how we feel about every issue. I have several pet peeves, and one of those is I do not give a second thought to some actor who is trying to give me his opinion on politics. You lost me, buddy. (laughs) Or some rock star opinion on moral issues. Oh, yeah or an athlete, an overpaid prima donna, concern for social justice? Nah, you don't get a platform in my life. But there are many distractions from pursuing peace. And David says, pursue peace. It's hard for me to pursue peace when I'm running late. My tolerance for others is painfully short when I'm running late. Especially slow, bad drivers. They drive me crazy. No peace there whatsoever. When I'm upset with the news media and the way they're presenting the news in their particular slant, Usually it's anti-Christian. It grinds on me, and I let it get to me. And I, I've had to cut back on just simply watching of the news. Now, in case you didn't know, Alabama won their football game last night. I'm a big Alabama fan. 
And if they lose a Saturday night game, it can be difficult then to get my mind and heart right to preach Sunday morning. And this has caused me to become a lesser fan of Alabama than I used to be. I can't let these players influence me by playing good football or by playing bad football. I can't allow that. I have to block that out. Tighter Insider. That's an internet program, and it's aired weekly. And it's no longer required watching for me. I don't feel that I have to watch it every week anymore. But, you know, it's sobering to come to a conclusion that I don't know one football player on Alabama's team personally, and not one of them knows me. So why am I a big fan? You ever think of that? I don't care what team you're for. How many players do you know? Back to Psalm 34. Got sidetracked there. We'll, we'll get back on line here. In verses 15 through 18, um, we hear that God is watching out for the righteous. Not only watching, but God hears the cry of the righteous. It's good to know that our Lord hears us. This knowledge of knowing that God hears us should cause any and every believer to voice their prayer, prayers out loud to God, who is a God of compassion, who cares about how we feel, what our needs are. And in verse 17, it says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers. What a promise. He also looks upon the unrighteous. And he says his face is against those who do evil. God does not ignore the evil things that go on in this world. But he's very patient and loving, just like he was to us, you and I. Wanting men to turn and repent. Verse 18. Do you have a broken heart? Are you in a sorrowful situation? No, God is near. He's near to you. Not just observing, but he's ready to save and deliver those who have a contrite spirit. What is a contrite spirit? Well, it's a spirit that is to be remorseful over sin, whether it's in others, whether it's in our nation, or whether it's in ourselves. To have a contrite spirit is to be remorseful over sin. And we can and we should be contrite over the sinful state of our nation. Our nation embraces sin wholeheartedly. So what does this sin do? What does the sin of America cause 
in your life? Is there a reaction to this? Or do we simply complain? Be part of the solution, my Christian friend. Be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Be praying for your nation. Be praying for your leaders. Be praying for those who oppose you and who do evil. In verse 19, it tells us that tragedy strikes the just and the unjust. It says, many are the affliction of the righteous and the unrighteous. However, therefore, but verily, verily, the Lord delivers the righteous out of them all. Simply put, trust God, my believing friend. Deliverance is already on its way. Sometimes it takes a little while for that deliverance to come, but it's never late. God cares what we go through. Then we have a peculiar passage in verse 20, and it's called a messianic passage or prophecy. He, God the Father, guards all his bones, not one of them broken. And this is speaking of Jesus. So we consider when Jesus was brutally beaten and, and spat upon and shamed, a crown of thorns, and all these things that were done to him, none of his bones were broken. The Roman soldiers and the Jews wanted to speed up the death of Jesus and the two thieves that hung next to him on the crosses. And in John's gospel, we have the details of this. So turn with me to John 19, and we'll look at verses 31 through 37. John 19, verse 31. <clears throat> Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first two and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The two thieves that hung next to Jesus, their legs are broken. And the reason they broke the legs to speed up their death was when you hung on a cross to take a breath, you had to push up to open up the cavity of your lungs where you could take air in. And it was a gruesome thing to do because death on a cross, you suffocated to death. 
And now their legs are broken and they no longer can lift themselves to breathe. And so they hang there and they die rather quickly, suffocating. But then they come to Jesus and he's already dead. But they can't take a chance that he's not dead, that perhaps there's little life in him. And one of the soldiers takes his spear and pierces his side going in his side, up into his heart, and water and blood came out, a sign of death. And they make sure Jesus is dead. But then we read in verse 36 that these things were done, so the verse in Psalm 34, 20 would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. For whatever reason, God the Father did not want any of the bones of Jesus to be broken. In a moment of clarity there, David, he prophesies about his Messiah not having any broken bones. And Jesus suffered greatly on the cross. Death of a Roman cross. But God again, for his own reasons, did not want the bones of his son broken. God was guarding Jesus, even on the cross, that his bones would not be broken. And here we have one of the most significant events in Jesus' crucifixion being prophesied a thousand years beforehand, written by David, on a run from Saul, and this prophecy is validity of the scriptures. David wrote how that the Messiah would not have any bones broken, and they didn't break any of his bones. So we have David giving us a conclusion of evil men doing their evil works to God's servants, and the outcome of them. God's still in control, even in the crucifixion of his son and how they crucified him. I'm going to close by reading two verses. But before I close reading those last two verses of Psalm 34, I want you to stand and we'll close in prayer. And then we'll use these two verses as kind of a benediction. Father God, we thank you for making scripture so true, so alive, in confirming it. David wrote about things I'm sure that puzzled him, but he wrote by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And a thousand years later, when Jesus hangs on the cross, they don't break his legs. They don't break his bones. They stab him with a spear and do all these other things but you protected his bones. And Lord, we don't fully understand all the significance of that, but it's you watching over your son and how man treats him, even while he was on the cross. So we thank you, Lord, for speaking forth truth a thousand years before it came about, just to show us how real and true your word is. It's that staple in our life. It's that 
thing that we can turn to any time for truth. We thank you for your word being alive and true. And we thank you for having it recorded where we can read it anytime we please, Lord. So we thank you for your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Let me read you the last.